This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw in the Iris at halifaxbloggers.ca and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. This week on Lensby Rears, we look at the work of a visionary filmmaker, perhaps one of the greatest American filmmakers whose initials aren't MS. We're talking about visual and spiritual stylist Terrence Malick. Well, it's not every filmmaker who can take a 20-year break between movies and and come back uh, as hotly anticipated as he was uh, two decades before. But uh, Terrence Malick, as uh, as we realize from watching his filmography and and rewatching some of those films over the last little while, is no ordinary filmmaker. Uh, born in the American South, he rose to prominence in the 70s with two very gorgeous tone poems devoted to violence and biblical retribution in Badlands and Days of Heaven. And then he vanished (laughs) for 20 years until suddenly emerging uh, fully in command of a big budget Pacific War saga based on a classic novel, The Thin Red Line. And uh, it was was quite the return to form, for my opinion anyway. And since then, he's continued to make films kind of with fairly alarming regularity, um, becoming more abstract and more concerned with matters of the soul than ever before. And uh, certainly certainly one of the most unique uh, visionary filmmakers uh, since David Lynch, I guess, would be the, the person uh, that I could most compare to, uh, but but concerned with more uh, more more heavenly and and philosophical matters perhaps than David Lynch's dive into the uh, into the psyche, but th- they're almost like different sides of the same coin in some ways. That's an interesting comparison. I never actually would have thought of that. I think what what distinguishes Malick is his visual sense. Like I think having rewatched now a number of his films recently for our conversation, I what really struck me was how much I think seeing his films in the cinema really benefits them almost more than any other filmmaker I can think of. Just by virtue, the bigger the better, by virtue of his incredible eye and the way he takes in, uh, he's fascinated with nature and animals and wildlife. And I I think this is actually something people say about him uh, as a criticism is that he's he's as interested in the setting and location as he is in the characters. And uh, and that uh, that I love about his films. I, I think that his films have this dreamlike quality that comes from from the way he moves the camera and the way he cares about the things that are going on that other filmmakers don't pay attention to uh, uh, birds flying or uh, an alligator going into a swamp. <laughs> like yes. the opening shot of, of Thin Red Line is an alligator, a caiman slipping into water. Uh, and and it, it, it speaks to that film, which is full of animal shots. Uh, and and some, some more than others. Uh, I, I, think, I think rewatching... Um, the the uh, the new world realizing there's fewer animals in that and more people but there is certainly a great deal of water and sky and that's something else that is every one of his movies all the ones i think there are what seven eight of his features has his characters walking in a river or in the ocean like, <laughs> or swimming or, or swimming <laughs> like the the water people in water is an ongoing theme uh, and it does it, it makes for an interesting 
feeling when you when you sit and watch his films this this constant re- return to to vis- visual uh, thematic signifiers uh yeah he he is he is a pretty wonderful film and i and i'm interested in hearing what you think about the way um uh the way he, his work has changed since even since his return like he had that break um but since his return certainly since uh, you know that was starting to happen with the new world but tree of life i think yeah. really signaled uh, a sea change in terms of what he was willing to do with voiceover which voiceover is a part of all his films but especially i think that was the moment where voiceover became almost more important than the spoken diagenic dialogue yeah it's uh it, it's it's interesting to see these films progress uh it uh, if if you look at it, at the films, of course, as a director, uh, his feature debut was Badlands, and uh, which is a, a a wonderful film with Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek as a pair of uh, teenage killers on a rampage, based on the Charles Starkweather who did uh, exactly that, inspired a song Nebraska by a Bruce Springsteen, who also had a song called Badlands. Obviously, that film made a big impact on him. Yeah, um, Martin Sheen plays a uh, kind of a. I guess a psychopath. I won't call him a serial killer, but you know, mass murderer who uh, was somehow inspired by James Dean, I think, <laughs> to some degree. Um, but before that, he'd, he'd written some screenplays. He, he made a short film that caught the attention of the folks at Raybert. Um, of course, uh, the uh, production team that came out of the Monkees, uh, and uh, did uh, did some uncredited script doctoring on a, a film called Drive. He said, which "Oh was yeah, the, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson's directorial Direct, de- yeah. debut. He's not in it. Stars Bruce Dern as a as a as I guess a uh, basketball coach who's kind of losing his uh, losing his mind. Um, and then and then uh, and then he he worked on a film uh, called." Uh, called Pocket Money, which uh, is not a very well-regarded film, but it stars Paul Newman and Lee Marvin as a couple of uh, drifter cowboys who uh, are, are kind of suckers for um, kind of crooked ranchers who, who want to use their talents without actually paying them what they're worth. And it's it's a, it's a very cool film that has, seems to be completely forgotten by most people from the director of Cool Hand Luke. So you can see how uh, Newman would have, would have been involved. Uh, and uh, the relationship between Newman and Lee Marvin is these kind of younger and, and older cowboys of a, of a different time is, is really fascinating. And, and I think there he's, he must've picked up some of the visual sense because you get the, you get the landscape of the, of the prairie and, and, and train tracks extending off into the distance and kind of these slow languorous takes. And, 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 uh, so it feeds directly into his first feature, uh, Badlands. There's also a, a trucker movie called Deadhead Miles, which I think was kind of like a work for hire thing. It was on YouTube, and I, and and I watched some of it, but it, it was not that great. And uh, I think it's since been removed, unfortunately, because I, I wouldn't mind taking a look at the whole thing. But it was it was kind of a struggle to get through a really really bad transfer. Um, but uh, yeah, but it's interesting to hear that his writer's voice coming through other other directors. But uh, but with Badlands, he kind of emerges almost fully formed. That's such a confident film and such a visually uh, Im- impressive debut, um, and, and a film that you know, considering it's from the early '70s, has not really aged uh, all that badly. It's yeah. it, you know, it, it does. It was set in the '50s, so it doesn't have the trappings of the '70s. But it it uh, it certainly has a very accurate portrayal. I mean, he's a stickler for accuracy and detail in, in, in all things, and 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 Badlands it really pays off. Um, it doesn't feel like the '50s 
the 70s version of the 50s, like, say, Happy Days or Grease. Right, like, right. You know, which is, the, the, there were a number of Lords of Flatbush. There were, there were a number of films in the in the 70s set in the 50s, but they still feel like the 70s somehow. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but Badlands, that is not the case. It, 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 you know, it has that feel of kind of life being slow and, and uh, you know, the boredom of living in the, in the middle of the, the Midwest with, with nothing to do and, uh, you know, which, you know, spurs Sissy Spacek's baton twirler to, uh, to kind of, Hook up with him. Hook up with this Hit. kind of, yeah. uh, you know, psychopathic rebel, yeah. as and, it were. And Sissy Spacek's character, she does the voiceover. She narrates the film mm. sort of in flashback, kind of. You get a sense that it's she's talking about things that happened in the past, uh, even though you don't know how far in the past. Uh, and her her narration, her voiceover is... Uh, she's she's so uh, naive and... Uh, and sort of sheltered, uh, and she completely falls in love with this character, and he is completely self-obsessed. Yeah. All he wants to do is be remembered. And every chance he gets, he records his voice, or he does something so that he will be remembered. And he's, you, you'd say in some ways, she's this, this, I think the film functions as both a kind of a teen movie, a coming-of-age movie, but it's also an outlaw movie, and an indictment of teen movies uh, in some ways. Uh you know, uh, and I, I think I think that he's like in his fascination with that first American teenager, James Dean. He, uh, Kit, the Martin Sheen character, is kind of a, a casualty of celebrity culture. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it is it is a gorgeous film. It has all those wonderful shots and of the the landscape, and uh, and it has the um, and this lovely score. Um, Malik tends to enjoy classical scores mm. in his films, and and this one really does almost a cheery score, given all the stuff that's going on, uh, and and that that uh, uh, sissy SpaceX Holly's character, her her lack of empathy <laughs> <laughs> and the cheeriness, actually, you could you could argue it crosses over into horror in a couple of moments where you're just like you cannot believe what they are doing and how little they really feel about it. <laughs> yeah, she's just a step away from becoming Carrie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and I mean, it's a gorgeous looking film, but I think maybe Malik's most beautiful film is Days of Heaven, which he shot famously in Alberta. It's uh, set in the 30s. And uh, he insisted on shooting it during the golden hour, which the period in the afternoon where the sun is just on the verge of the horizon. Of course, it's really not an hour. I mean, when the light is perfect, it's... Um, it's really you only got about half hour, something like that. Yeah, yeah, like forty and, minutes at best. And yeah. so when he's shooting all these exteriors at that time of day, you start to wonder. Watching the movie again recently, I was like, you know, is it ever daytime really in this <laughs> land of wheat? Uh, but but I mean, it's it makes for incredibly beautiful scenery, and uh, you know, again, you have that feeling of the landscape being as important as the characters, and uh, it, it's. Basic story is about a couple here played by uh, Richard Gere and Brooke Adams who travel from the steel factories of Chicago to the Texas panhandle looking for work in the Depression. Uh, he brings along his younger sister played by Linda Manns and she winds up narrating the story. Uh, now their life in Texas isn't much better. They're working all the time from, from dawn till dusk. Uh, but a rich farmer 
played by Sam Shepard, takes an interest in Brooke Adams' character, and Richard Gere's character kind of comes up with this idea. They, he hears that, that the rich farmer is going to, uh, is going to die, so he, he figures she can marry him and then inherit his wealth when he passes. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the plan. Uh, and uh, and the, 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 the Richard Gere character and the Brooke Adams character have, have been pretending to be brother and sister because they want to sort of avoid gossip. Uh, so no one knows that they're, in fact, a couple. Uh, so all this this plan sort of starts to work, but then uh, it doesn't quite go where you think it's going <laughs> to yes. go, and it doesn't. And and Richard Gere's character finds himself in a really tough spot. Um, and you know, it's funny talking about the plot points like this makes it feel a little bit like it's a thriller or something. You know, like a, a murder thriller. But it, it does have those elements. There is violence in the film, but it doesn't feel. It's very pastoral. It, everything goes on at such a glacial sort of pace uh, and I have heard there's something else about Malick is he has a tendency to create his films in the editing suite he will shoot enormous amounts yes. of film and then and then sort of construct it in the editing suite sometimes that means cutting out characters entirely uh, who just didn't feel he didn't feel were working for the story so with that process uh, it doesn't make for super tight plots it tends to be a lot more meandering as a result well, there's, there's there's more to movies than plots. I was, in fact, reading um, a piece uh, just the other day about uh, uh, it, was, it was the movie Morlocks uh, blog had a piece like, "Do movies have to make sense?" And uh, he starts off with a you know, and of course he starts off by discussing David Lynch, and uh, you know who who talks about when he showed Eraserhead to his then teenage son and then who had lots of questions and you didn't answer any of them. <laughs> you figure it out for yourself. And, you know, but I saw that film when I was 13 and it kind of made sense to me at 13, which probably says a lot. Um, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's all about the, he's, he's more interested in the feeling of uh, the film about, uh, you know, reaching something uh, inside. Uh, in Days of Heaven, we start to see, I can't remember if there's anything really biblical happening except maybe Starkweather talking about meeting his maker perhaps as, as something along those lines but it's a lot more explicit in Days of Heaven of course the the whole you know posing his brother and sister thing is right out of the Old Testament right the, was it uh, Abraham and Sarah I think when uh -huh. they went to Pharaoh's land or what, what have you um, so you know we're starting to see that creep in, into the film um, but uh, yeah the vis visuals first and uh, and the kind of impact that they have on the viewer uh dictates where the film kind of goes uh and i wonder i wonder i mean i, I don't you know I, I think on the the criterion edition i don't know that there are any outtakes from days of heaven i mean obviously it was so long ago there, there aren't not on the criterion i have that oh. at home but that i haven't i haven't seen there isn't much maybe a maybe a deleted scene or two but um because like i think badlands being fairly low budget was probably a pretty tight shooting schedule uh -huh. and pretty efficiently made i mean obviously it's very direct story-wise um Days of Heaven, they're probably, you know, given that they were, you know, only shooting for brief periods every day, with the exception of a one amazing uh, nighttime scene with yes, the, the, the fire, fire and, yeah. and, and some of the stuff with the locusts and so on, that, that, right. that um, you know, that perhaps it was carefully planned out with some room left for improvisation. And maybe we'll talk about this more with Thin Red Line, but, but um, you know, the, the fact that it doesn't, you don't know where it's going to go. That's it's right. Just, you're, you're on this journey off from the city to the prairie and uh you're kind of just along for the ride oddly enough you meant you mentioned the music which uh which i like because i think i was led to this film by the music because i had um i had a leo kotke album that had many of the many of the themes uh 
in this film, our, our acoustic guitar piece is played by Leo Kotke, who's one of my favorite musicians. Um, and uh, I had the, this one record in particular that had a, the handful of pieces that were in the movie are on this record. And, and he talks about working, he calls them, you know, working with Terry, Terrence Malick to construct, you know, they were written for the film or improvised for the film mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, and then uh, and then I got shown the film in a film class I took. Uh, Bob uh, Merritt, who is no longer with us, uh, who the Merritt Awards are named after, the, the uh, Nova Scotia Theatrical Awards, um, uh, just absolutely adored this film and uh, insisted that we, we watch it. I think we probably watched a crappy VHS copy. I don't, I don't think we saw it on film or anything like that. And he talked about when it played in Halifax, it played at the Downsview Cinema <laughs> in, in Sackville. It played there for a week and then it was gone. I think that was the kind of uh, inglorious release that it got. So it's, it's the sort of film that, that kind of went under the radar. I think, I think, you know, and maybe that reception is why he went to ground for, for two decades following its release. That, that I know it was a difficult film to make. Yeah. I've, I've certainly heard that and that, uh, that, you know, he put a lot into it, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why he went to ground for so long. Um, but the film is so worth visiting. Uh, you know, it's. I definitely see the biblical overtones. You mentioned the locusts, uh, yeah. but also industrial development seems to be a real evil. The harvesters, the trains, even a biplane and triplane that show up at one point, uh, they sort of carrying a certain kind of chaos in the form of a flying circus. Uh, you know, and and then eventually there are there is murder and blood uh, that comes to visit upon this story. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, I also realize that we have Malik to thank or potentially blame for Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu's The Revenant. <laughs> you know, I mean, which also famously was shot in Alberta in very yes. difficult circumstances. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, I mean, this uh, he burned through two cinematographers in, in this movie. I, I, I think, is it Nestor Alamandros who had to leave? And then is it Haskell Wexler who came in and was trying to repli- That's right. replicate... Uh, what uh, Nestor was doing, and Nestor, I guess, gave him a list of instructions, like no filters, and you know, you had to, you know, had to be pure. And, and then he, you know, Nestor says, "Well," or uh, Wexler later said that, "Yeah, I, I had to use a filter a few times <laughs> just, just for, you know, because we lost our son and whatever." But um, you know, it was, I think it was a pretty, uh, pretty trying time, and and, and maybe uh, maybe the the expense of the film and then the toll it took on its crew maybe maybe it made him persona non grata in Hollywood I don't know but um, you know it, it's certainly a film that grew in reputation I don't think that it was quite seen as the masterpiece that it is at the time um, you know I, I don't know if it was viewed as like a Heaven's Gate style release uh, but uh, it, it's certainly a film that once you know people came back to it and when it when it surfaced in better quality formats i mean like i say i saw it on vhs and i saw it on laserdisc and then i can see it on blu-ray i'm sure i had a dvd in there somewhere as well so it's a film that you know gradually gets better every time i see it but i still have not seen you know a proper you know 35 millimeter print of it you know i'm hoping that one day i'll be at the tiff light box and uh, you know magic will uh you know the fates will be kind and it'll be on the schedule but uh you know until that day happens i'll have to be content with my home viewing version but but it, it's it's a film that that i see new things in every time i every time i watch it um and uh, you know it's 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 amazing that maybe he just couldn't get that kind of latitude to, to make the kind of film that he wanted for that long but uh you know so certainly there's a lot of anticipation i know that he spent some time bird watching in nova scotia uh, oh, that's, really? That's one of, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know where that came up, but I, I've read it in a couple of different sources that he, 
you know, that was one of his, obviously he likes birds because they're in every freaking yeah, film. Totally. But, uh, but apparently he's a dedicated birder and, you know, the, the, he, there were a couple of years in a row where he'd be in Cape Sable Island during migratory bird season because that's, that's the hot spot on the Eastern seaboard for, for catching birds, uh, you know, heading North and South and East and West. But, um, uh, too bad we never ran into him. <laughs> <laughs> So a number of years ago, I don't know if I've ever told this story on this podcast, but I think it's definitely podcast worthy. Uh, David Gordon Green was here in town. He made a film Snow Angels. Snow Angels here. Yeah, that's right. Great film. And uh, and I got invited to uh, dinner with Mr. Gordon Green. And uh, we started talking about Malik because I knew that Malik was a bit of a mentor to him as a filmmaker. And I certainly seen his Malik's influence in, in his early, early work. Uh, and I asked, you know, Malik's famously a, a fairly reclusive guy. So we started talking and, and, and green, he, um, he offered, he's, he's like, you know what Malik does when he's not working on a feature film? I mean, he's, he's very busy. And I was like, really, what does he do? He said he has, um, he has a, a sort of situation where he will test new camera equipment because he's considered kind of a master camera knows everything about cameras so when there is a, a brand new camera on the market they'll send it to him and he will test it out and run it through its paces and then give I guess give reports back uh, but he apparently really enjoys to do that so he's, he's really involved in the technical side of things uh, which I thought was fascinating I didn't I didn't know that about uh, Malik at all well he, he you know he's the really the prime visual stylist at these days I mean you know Malik is kind of like, jeez, uh, like the closest thing we have to a Kubrick, basically, like a guy who has this very singular vision, who can make films that are extremely divisive, but you still, even if you didn't li- like like the film, you want to go back and revisit it to like try and make your brain adjust to what you just saw, perhaps. Um, and and just an incredibly strong visual style, which, you know, it's it's harder and harder to have for some directors. I mean, obviously, technology has gotten to the point where where you can do digitally, you can do a lot digitally what you can do on film, but a lot quicker and more cheaply. But uh, knowing what to do with that technology is is, uh, is the, the hard part of that equation. Sure. equation. Um, so, you know, and he's, he's seen, he's gone from lens to lens to faster film and, and everything. And it, it seems like he's, he's, pretty obsessed with with that and get yeah. in order to get you know i mean knowing that to film that you know quarter to six until six thirty every evening i mean that's 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 pretty dedicated I'd it say. is it is now i don't think he quite was that uh uh intense uh about the thin red line he certainly no. had a lot of beautiful shots in there but he didn't hesitate to shoot in the daytime uh the story if if you haven't seen it uh is it's his war movie it's basically telling the story of a world war ii battalion of american troops taking taking an island in the south pacific from the japanese uh certainly it's about the pointlessness of suffering and the endless uh, the endlessness of war in a in a very grim uh serious way uh and it's I found it fascinating revisiting the film partly because it just it's very it's almost at that point I felt like I could feel him loosening his his structure uh, in the terms of the way he shot things I mean there is a segment right in the middle of the film the sort of the the set main set piece is this this battle sequence where a group of soldiers are trying to take this hill and are in constant communication with the 
the the the commanders who are further back. Uh, <laughs> Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte, who is amazing in the film. <laughs> yes. Like I think he is the he's the standout performance. Nolte is incredible. Uh, though that we've introduced to him on a ship where he has uh, interaction with John Travolta. This is the thing about the film. There are some amazing roles and performances uh, from people like Jim Caviezel with his million yard stare and Sean Penn and John Cusack and Elias Coteus is is quite good. Uh, Nolte is incredible, but then they're surrounded by a lot of other, uh, to me, fairly stunt casting. And I'm sure that Malik didn't feel this way. He's just like that guy will work. Uh, he pro- <laughs> I, I don't I don't think he did this on purpose. He's, he's putting them all in the same uniform, like they're all wearing green cocky. So it's not like they it's it's about a there's a glamour to this, but. There are people like Woody Harrelson and George Clooney and especially John Travolta who just just like their presence in the film. You go kind of like, what? What? And yeah, so Travolta plays the commander on the ship and uh, and Nick Nolte plays a guy who is sort of a field commander, but he is uh, he hasn't advanced to the point where he believes he should be in his career. And he feels like this is his opportunity to really make a difference and really shine on the as a warrior. Uh, and, And they have this scene together on the ship where they're having a conversation and it's and in between the conversations and the silences Nolte's voiceover sort of philosophizing about how lonely and how lost he is and it's it borders on parody i feel like there are moments like that 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 really where i just these are the things that people hate about malik when they they get <laughs> frustrated with him you know uh, and yet then there are these other scenes that are incredibly beautiful uh where the camera just sort of floats over the long grass and through the trees and and the way it's edited and and cut together uh it's it's just it's beautiful it's just simply beautiful even in in a war movie like this yeah it's 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 maybe it's i mean it's almost 20 years hard to believe since this film came out now but uh the excitement surrounding this movie was insane like you know amongst film nerds of course most people probably didn't give a crap but it, you know it, was, it came out around the same time as Saving Private Ryan and that was the hot debate of which was the better war film and you know one was a European theater film and this is the Pacific film and um, you know Thin Red Line based on a, a very well known war novel um, I think a lot of that voiceover stuff a lot of it actually did come out of the novel I think some of it's fairly faithful and some of it's some of uh, Malick's own flights of fancy about these characters um, and it was unusual that he was adapting a previously known quantity namely the the novel uh, Thin Red Line and what he was going to do with it and uh, how close he was going to hew to to what was in the book um, you know and he, I just even remember like being in the theater waiting for that what was that first shot going to be which of course is the the caiman or the crocodile or whatever crawling you know very dimly lit mm-hmm. <laughs> shot of this this beast crawling out of the muck Um uh, you know, I'm just trying to parse that and think, well, okay, well, where are we going with this? And, um, you know, and then the next thing you know, you're Caviezel's cavorting on the beach with the, with the in- indigenous people of the Solomon Islands or what have you. Um, and, and it felt very loose and you, you weren't really sure where things were going to go. And of course these faces kept popping up. I, I, I get the impression that people like Travolta and Clooney, they just wanted to be part of this. This yeah. was such a major event amongst like sort of Hollywood elite that they just want to just be, be in one scene. Totally, totally. And, and I think, and then of all his films, I think this is the one that's most famous for having cut people entirely oh, yeah. out, like having shot so many actors and then just deciding, okay, this one's just not working for me. This storyline, we don't need it. So just 
absolutely excising it. So there are actors, famous actors, who've said they've been in the film but aren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, what I've heard, uh, and this has a great commentary, by the way, but um, if you get the Criterion edition that uh, that is uh, includes um, Jack Fisk, who is the, I think has been done the production design on most of his films. He's also married to Sissy Spacek. Oddly enough, there's another connection. Um uh, and cinematographer and some of the other producers and uh, Malik, of course, does not take part, which is no surprise. But uh, talking about how this, there's probably an, an entire other film that could be assembled. Like, like if he ever wanted to make work project, he could actually make a sequel out of the footage that uh, was discarded. Wow. There's probably a whole other film there that <laughs> that uh, could be put together. Um, you know, like apparently, like we get a. I remember watching this again, uh, you know, for the first time in years and seeing faces that I'd forgotten were in this. Like, you know, obviously I remembered Sean Penn and Travolta and Nolte, but then, oh, John C. Riley's in this <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah, that's right. And apparently there's a whole sub story with John C. Riley that does not appear in, in this uh-huh. movie and, uh, as another example. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't find that many faults with it. I mean, it was a little less story driven than I expected. Like I, and I didn't know what to expect. Um, uh, I kind of just went for the sheer poetry of it as I was watching it. Uh, and the battle scenes I thought were remarkable. Mm-hmm. I guess, uh, in the commentary, they talk about how the actors got pretty beat up because, because I don't know how much CGI is in this. Yeah. It doesn't, I don't, doesn't look like there's much because it, you know, for a lot of, to do, like I, I think a lot of it is practical effects, yeah, and a lot of stunt work, <laughs> because uh, you know maybe I think some of the ships and they 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 say that some of those battleships are real and some of them aren't, um, but uh, you know they they try to use it sparingly to, to try and make it as practical and in camera as they could, and uh, you know you it really feels brutal and intense when they're storming that hill, and uh, you know I love that the centerpiece is that the storming of the hill because that is one of the oldest war movie cliches imaginable. You think of, like go back to Hamburger Hill with uh, Gregory Peck and and Sands of Iwo Jima and 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 so on. Like that's you know boys, we got to take that hill, and then somehow they take that and turn it into this uh, you know attempt to you know man's attempt at conquest his inner self and his uh, overcome his. His, his ego and, and strive for the greater good, I guess. So <laughs> whatever yeah. you want to read into it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, this kind of redefined the war movie for me. Again, not not a genre I was uh, beloved of, although there's uh, quite a number I've enjoyed. But but uh, to see this, you know, again, more philosophical take on 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 battle and conflict and and, you know, what the big guy upstairs must think of it all as he looks down. I mean, uh, I'm being facetious, I guess, but, um, but I, I really, uh, came away with this fairly, you know, energized and, and, you know, really, really pleased that he was back and, and doing something unique. And of course, as, as I found out more about the backstory of the film, it just seemed to fascinate me yeah. more well, and more. I, I enjoyed watching it again, but I, I can't say I loved it as much as mm. watching the new world a second time. Yeah. The New World, for me, is feels like the triumph, uh, where his style perfectly matches the material. This is a story of European colonists uh, in the 17th century, I guess, coming to North America and encountering, in quote-unquote, the, the naturals, mm. as Christopher Plummer's character calls them, the Native Americans, and Captain John Smith, uh, played by Colin Farrell, falling in love with Pocahontas, and then later her travels to the new world of the of, of England and Europe, her new world, uh, with another man. Uh, and uh, she's played by 
Corianka Kilcher, and she's just a, a revelation on screen. She's mm. beautiful, and apparently was only fourteen when made when she made the film. Uh, and and it's an astonishingly beautiful film. I know I'm repeating myself here, but when I with uh, <laughs> these this hyperbole uh, around these films, but but uh, it just feels like an American myth. And again, there's a biblical overtones of of Eden and you know and and corruption and and how. Uh, how it it and the commonalities between all people, um, and it has all those things that Malik seems to be obsessed with: people in water, extraordinary cinematography and exteriors, uh, natural scenes shot in the magic hour, the voiceover. Uh, what I think the New World has over the Thin Red Line is a sense that maybe he's a little more interested in the people and in the story mm. and the the love affair, this somewhat tragic love affair between the two lead characters. Um, more so than the birds and the long grass, although the birds and the long the yeah. water, that's all there. <laughs> uh, I also happen to know that the the New World has three different versions. There's the 135-minute version, the 150-minute version, and the 178-minute version, which I understand this year will all be released oh. on a special uh, Criterion edition. Yeah, it's funny. I was watching the, the Blu-ray of, that's currently available and realizing it was a longer version by about I guess a half hour or so and, and trying to pick out what was what was new and it, it's very the changes seemed very nuanced to me I, I, yeah there was every once in a while I'd see something that I thought was new but I hadn't seen it in so long well the problem with the film with with so where he has his very loose relationship with plot is that there's it all becomes like imagery and there's so much of it that sometimes it's hard to tell where those changes have been made yeah like I, th- I think in Thin Red Line he was probably tied to the novel in some regards I mean it, it's it's a very loose adaptation but but uh you know, he had some of those character archetypes, the tough sergeant, and, you know, and and so I think that was it was odd that he was working with something that had such a rigid um, structure and then trying to expand out upon that. With the new world, obviously, you know, we, history tells us only so much about these people. You know, how much do we really know about Pocahontas or John Smith? Um, uh, I like the fact that Pocahontas was fairly young because I think in real reality she was what like somewhere between 10 and 12 or something uh-huh. like that. I mean, she was quite young. She wasn't the one in the Disney cartoon. Um, so so this seems to hew a little more closely to what we know. Um, and the fact that, you know, John Smith is not the one that she wound up marrying or going to, to Europe with or what have right. you. Um, and uh, it's it does have, you know, the, the, the beauty of the film is that it does carry that sense of wonder of arriving in this foreign, you know, these guys were basically the the 1600s version of astronauts and uh you know kind of landing on a new planet as it were (laughs) and then it's you know if you think about it as kind of like almost like a science fiction film uh just with very archaic uh tools and technology it's 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 pretty fascinating absolutely you know and and i like there's almost a feeling of hope that this could have the the relationship between the settlers and and the, the indigenous people could have gone a different way. There was a moment um, where they're they're just very curious about each other and yeah and they don't uh, and yeah and, and Plummer's character says we must not uh, in, in, antagonize them. Yes, yeah, and it, it makes you wonder like oh it's just you know a few things had been changed what what could have been different, um, and uh, you know there's it it's kind of positive about mankind, even though we know what really happens mm-hmm. uh, in, in the decades and centuries that follow. Um, and again, you know, there's, there's this feeling of accuracy about it that I don't always get from, from film set that far yeah, in, the, absolutely. in the past. And I have done some reading and I know that not all of it was accurate, but they made, no. they made, they did do 
an enormous made an enormous effort to try to recreate it as much as they possibly could the the, the historical uh, facts of of the the meeting between these cultures. Uh, boy, it's it's a it's a great film, um, and uh, yeah, and I. I uh, I, I I don't know. I, it's funny. It's it's uh, it's funny revisiting some of these films. Feel greater to me uh, seeing them again, and some of them feel a little lesser. <laughs> but but boy, it's a pleasure seeing them no matter what. Yeah, and I get. I guess you know it's nice that I mean the New World is really the only film he's kind of continued to tinker with, uh, and uh, you know I can't wait to see what else he does because because these films are also. Uh, there's that feeling of improvisation that happens and more and more as they go along and uh in fact that's you know that's what his producers confirm that that he needs to have room to to you know make stuff up on the spot to see what his actors can deliver you know when called upon to 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 work off the cuff as it were and uh obviously the the new world uh you know still contains possibilities i i don't know that he would ever return to the more recent films, but the, you know, uh, but, but new world seems to be something that, and it, because it was a film that I, I f- feel like it kind of came and went that it wasn't, uh, I think it probably got okay reviews. I haven't gone back and looked at reviews, but, uh, but it's, it's not a film that's as, you know, that comes to mind as, as quickly as something like thin red line, which you see, you know, every father's day, they have to load up on war movies in the, in the racks at Walmart for whatever reason because dads love war um, but but uh, the, the New World is a film that I think uh, needs to be kind of rediscovered in a way So Tree of Life when it came out I definitely it was part of my list of the best films of 2011 and uh, it almost needs its own sort of list. It was so unusual and it was so ambitious. It was like no other film that year or really even in the decade that came before it. Uh, it really felt like like uh, something had changed with Malick where he, he really did, he was, he was concentrating his style in a way that that uh, made a, a real division between this film and, and what, what happened before. He was using those visuals and using voiceover to create these strange, almost, I mean, Kubrick is, is probably, you mentioned him before, and I think he, I think his films maybe are the ones that are closest to what he was trying to accomplish, Tree of Life, which is these huge themes. I mean, really, he goes back to, to prehistory <laughs> in the beginning of the film, uh, and then he and then he goes and then he it was total macro you know grace versus nature and then it gets very micro with with most of the running time the function uh the look at a texas family in the 1950s and then there is the sort of coda which which is largely a group of people meeting on a beach who otherwise never would have had a chance to meet in real life and uh, I um, I was so impressed with the ambition of it and what he was trying to do and I, I love the fact that this sometimes you see a film and you go oh gosh people really need to see this and then they never do and really like <laughs> films can vanish from yes. the culture but this was a movie that everyone was going to see because people needed to have an opinion and it was so discussed uh in some ways i think it's maybe i don't know if it had the biggest box office of, of any terrence malick film but it certainly felt like the most culturally significant film that he's done to date yeah and there and even though there there's a 20-year gap between uh, days of heaven and thin red line and then the next couple of films came out at about f- like five-year intervals which which seemed a lot more 
sensible. You know, he can, <laughs> yes, he can get us a couple of years of bird watching, a year of screenwriting, and then you know making the film. And uh, you know that's 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 fairly reasonable. Um, so along comes Tree of Life, and we 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 see him continuing some of the the themes and and the the roving camera that we've seen in in the previous two films, which wasn't necessarily something that he was doing as much in those films in the seventies. Um, where the the camera becomes the roving eye, the or the god's eye, even uh, you know, which I, I don't think is stepping too far out of line with these films, um, but almost like throwing the parts up into the air and seeing where they land, like like using some of some of these kind of abstract principles, uh, the, almost like like a mix of of Burroughs and James Joyce or something like that, and applying those those kind of principles to, to filmmaking, and yet. Uh, in, in this film, it works. You ju- you just uh, you hone in on the characters. You, you see them in kind of this fractured uh, past and present, and uh, you don't even know if like the scene you're seeing now is before or after the scene you last saw them in. Um, it's 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 like he's taken time and kind of shattered it, I uh-huh. guess. Uh, and uh, you know, each scene is like a leaf on a, a tree of life. Uh, were, you know, I was trying to figure out where the the tree comes into play in, in this <laughs> film, and it's 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 something that didn't occur to me right away. And I, you know, I, I imagine I'll watch it again not too far down the road and and have a completely different feeling about yeah, it. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those things like it depends on the on the mood or whatever. But but uh, you know, it it really is this interesting look at the the human heart and and guilt and. Uh, and and hope for for a better world in the great beyond and in in in, in a way that I hadn't really seen in a film before and I, I'm, there probably are cinematic precedents that I just haven't caught on to but it, it felt like he was drawing from maybe composers and writers that that uh, that play with time and and uh, and space in a different way yeah and, and it. it it really was a was a unique vision that I feel like you could maybe take the dinosaurs out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, but if if part but of I the like, theme yeah. is is the theme of mercy and grace yeah. versus nature, then then that scene does kind of make sense overall. Like I understand what he's trying to get at, but yes, it it, it did feel like it, it did feel again the people who who can't take this stuff and don't <laughs> like Malik. They can point at that scene and go, "Come on," you know. Exactly. And I and I get that. I totally do. Um, and it's funny because I think to the wonder from 2012 uh, pushes those even further. Like you know that people describe the tree of life as poetic, uh, but I think that to the wonder takes that descriptor even further. And I. I I when I saw Who the Wonder in the cinema, I really loved what he was doing, and I've watched it again since. This is the one I <laughs> yes. came back to, and I was like, I'm actually really kind of getting frustrated with this, this, uh, this whimsy that he seems to have in this storytelling, or this this lack of plot, or or not allowing characters to actually speak to one another, but only we only hear from them through voiceover. It's almost like reading a a story in a book where there's no actual dialogue; it's just narrative uh, voiceover. And I find that I find that it places into the wonder really frustrating, but I also understand that it's a place where movie making and editing kind of becomes the same thing where the entire film could be described as montage where, uh, um, you know, this, this is real, real poetry. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that he uses, he's pursuing sensation and visual language rather than narrative and where themes dwarf character to the point of fragmentation. It, it's so beautiful in places, but, uh, but the you know and the, and the plot, if you want to call it that, it's about a woman who falls in love with uh, an American. She's European. He's American, and they meet in France. Their romance consummated with a visit to Mont Saint Michel, and then they 
they move to uh, to the United States, where Marina and her ten year old daughter. Uh, join Neil at a home in suburban Oklahoma and there's strife and she may be depressed and his job seems to cause some grief. He measures industrial damage on the environment and local residents and there's not much he seems to be able to do for anyone and uh, and then they fragment and then uh, Neil meets an old friend and uh, then, you know, I'm not exactly sure what happens <laughs> in the end but uh, anyway, o- Olga Kurilenko, Ben Affleck Tatiana Ch- uh, Cellini and um, Rachel McAdams are the, all those characters, uh, and I, I it's uh, you know and, and he really loves his characters in some ways, or he loves their physicality. Like I don't mm. actually like I, the way he f- films them. They're the the everyone is really beautiful in the film, and you can kind of get lost in in their physicality, in their shoulders, and their throats, and their 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 jaws, and and just like as as elements, as visual elements rather than people. Uh, it almost becomes abstract. Uh, and I was reminded of Bernardo Bertolucci and, and Liv Tyler uh, in Stealing Beauty, like the way the camera loves the actors. And there's a lot of that going on here. Uh, and it, it gets to the point where it's almost like there is more in common with... Uh, Malik has more in common with Pina Bausch and and dance <laughs> yes. than he does with regular filmmakers, his peers. It's like he's he's capturing the actor's movement and he's letting that tell a story rather than what we usually accept as storytelling techniques within within a film. Yeah, I, I t- it almost felt like an emperor's new clothes situation with me, especially because this came out, you know, after the five year gap. I guess you know, like I think of of Thin Red Line and um, the New World is kind of his middle period. And then there's kind of a break, and then we get this new string of films, and then we get Tree of Life and To the Wonder coming out pretty quickly after one another. And I guess he's got two more films in the works. Um, So he's making up for all that lost time. So he's making up for lost time. Um, Maybe he should have taken another five-year break. I don't know. This this film, I I didn't... None of the characters... Like, the family crises crises in in Tree of Life, uh, you know, felt a lot more clear and a lot more um, emotionally resonant here n- nothing felt emotionally resonant with me uh-huh. and and, uh, and the visuals tired me out uh, you know I really didn't want to see Marina twirling through another field of tall grass uh, you know after, you know I, I just thought I couldn't believe that he'd made a manic pixie dream girl movie <laughs> uh, and uh, you know just watching Ben Affleck scowl and walk from one room to another I just I just didn't find any meaning in any of it, right. I guess. And, right. Uh, well, this is when I, I, I know that's how you felt about it, and I was prepared for you to, to make mm. that case. And I understand what you're saying. Uh, again, and I, I hate to say this as someone who writes about film, but it really is about mood. If you're in the right mood, I think mm. you can really find grace and poetry in that. But if you're not, and, yeah. and I, I definitely I, struggled with it more watching it the second time than I did the first time. Yeah, I I I could see that, I, but I you know I kind of I I enjoyed Tree of Life. I was bracing myself for something that was pr- probably going to be fairly non-narrative and 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 uh, you know more focused on camera movement and and visuals and and uh, and even then I I only found like half a movie here. Like the 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 Javier Bardem, the the Father Quintana part of the film, 
I like that part of the film. Uh-huh. And maybe maybe the fact that I like that part of the film and his story, and I wanted to see more of him. And, right. You know, and maybe if there had been more interaction with him and, and the other characters, as opposed to, it seemed like there was a, kind of a divide between what was going on with him and, and what was going on with uh, Affleck and Olga Kurilenko. Um, maybe that frustrated me even more. That, that Like, well, here's a part of the movie that I do like, and maybe it contrasted the parts that were driving me that yeah. shit crazy yeah. if I may use a term uh, <laughs> so um, I think maybe that contrast maybe if it wasn't quite so stark I might have be able to take it a little better and I and I'm, you know again I'm thinking you know how many hours of footage were probably shot yeah. To, yeah, to make this film um, um, so, so then my question to you is how did you feel about Knight of Cups because I feel like of, well, of a yeah. Knight of Cups into the Wonder certainly structurally have a lot they're of very similarities similar. in they the are. way they're they're shot, but there are there are more characters in Knight of Cups, and there is a more I would say narrow uh, location like the milieu of Hollywood and wealth uh, and Las Vegas to some degree feels much more focused uh, than than to the Wonder, where you know there is definitely a more thematically it feels a little more narrow. Um, oh, also Rachel McAdams. Uh, always sets my teeth on itch so she didn't help either <laughs> having right. her into the you know uh, in, into the wonder maybe uh, although she doesn't play that big a role in the film but but she's always a, a minus in pretty much any film she's in um, and yeah I thought Ooh, that's about, pretty harsh man yeah well <laughs> you didn't like her in Spotlight I thought she was pretty good in Spotlight Spotlight is probably the one time I thought okay uh-huh. <laughs> she's not so bad <laughs> you know she's she's uh, just less annoying or I don't know. What, well, okay. So, so I, uh, you I, know, maybe she's just, maybe the ensemble is the tide that lifts all boats. In there you go. I don't know. <laughs> but but um, I just, I've just never liked her. Right. Um, so, so, but Knight of Cups. Um, well, you know what? I, as I was watching Knight of Cups, I realized it was doing a lot of the same things as to the wonder. Yes. But it felt more even handed, I guess mm. that, that, that it didn't have that really strong side story or character that I liked more than the main story for lack of a better word, which is probably the wrong word to use, but, um, part of the ensemble, I guess. Whereas, uh, Knight of Cups is, uh, I, as I was watching, I realized, okay, this could be really frustrating. <laughs> um, but, uh, I felt more caught up in the flow of the film in the, in the imagery and, 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 the, you know, the, the, moving from the desert and I thought it had a stronger sense of place than to the wonder you know that it was basically set in the environs of Los Angeles from the beach to the desert and uh, you know and, and seeing Christian Bale as this I, I guess a director I think we see him on yeah, the film or a writer set. he's a writer maybe um, it's hard, yeah, it's, again it's a little hard to say what his, his role you know, is in, is he in, directing for films or is he making commercials I'm yeah. <laughs> never 100% sure mm-hmm. um, but the, the vagaries of that film didn't didn't bother as much, me as much and, and, and there are motifs repeated over and over again this in this case people walking or running on a beach um is repeated but there were enough differences in those scenes and they they seem to fit into their their chapters because the film is divided up into chapters as he proceeds through a series of relationships um and i think maybe those relationships are more of a through line than uh, than to the wonderhead which just seemed to be kind of spinning in circles for two right. hours yeah. um, and uh, you know and Christian Bale doesn't do a whole lot more than Ben Affleck does into the wonder but I, no he just he's moody he's, he's moody but <laughs> I, I guess maybe Christian Bale's moodiness is, is more uh, entrancing than uh, than uh, Ben Affleck's and uh, I felt and I did go into a kind of a trance state in uh, in Night of Cups that I felt you know kind of caught up in it, it it's it's is a very almost like a transcendental 
movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, I agree. And that's where I felt like it... Like, I can understand where people who don't have patience for it, but the endless camera shots, looking up at actors from their waists or over their mm. shoulders, the visual non sequiturs and that lack of dialogue puts you in kind of a mood or in a in a mode that if you can plug into it, it's, it's pretty wonderful. I, I had this strange experience walking out of the cinema where I sort of felt like I was still in the story, where everyone around me was moving sort of in slow motion, and I was paying attention to things I wouldn't necessarily pay attention to. Though I watched it in Park Lane Cinema, and there isn't really much to, <laughs> You walk out, it's a mall. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, what is there to see that's that's wonderful and, and poetic? But it's it's quite... I found it quite amazing. And and, and his casting, in this case, I think, is is terrific. He... he uh, the Bale is the center of the story, but he's sort of he's swirling around him. Our our actors, including Kate Blanchett, Isabel Lucas, Teresa Palmer, Natalie Portman, Imogen Poots, uh, Frida Pinto, Wes Bentley, and the excellent Brian Dennehy, who we just don't see often enough. Uh, and then also character actors like Michael Wincott, who I haven't seen in anything for years, yes. uh, Clifton Collins Jr., and Antonio Banderas, who I think is is quite good in his section. Now, these are all characters who show up, sort of state their cases or interact with with our lead and then can vanish and and are replaced by other characters and it and there's this constant flow you know and I I I'm reluctant to make too many uh, um, analogies in, in this case but but that sort of the fact of of it's almost like Malik's fascination with water and flow is yes. is being <laughs> transferred to the actual making of the film where he wants to make a movie that feels like you're in a river. And you're just moving along and carried from one rock or one thing to another in a bubbly kind of passage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I felt that To the Wonder didn't go anywhere. And I didn't, I, you know, I wasn't, there was no wonder. In, in a, <laughs> right. I just wondered why it was just so static for me. I, and I, I know that's not what it was meant to do. I feel like he, whatever he was trying to do in To the Wonder, I feel like maybe he achieved... <laughs> In this film, uh, to a greater degree, and a lot of it has to do with the cast. I think he's, he's got a better cast to work with in the film. Um, you know, maybe a better variety of actors through the course of the film. Um, yeah, Wes Bentley as as his kind of ne'er do well brother mm-hmm. uh, was 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 riveting. I hadn't seen him uh, be good in a long time, and uh, I, don't know, I, I guess I, in my head, I, I was enjoying putting the pieces together a lot more. In Night of Cups than I did into the, in, to the Wonder. I, at some point, I just wanted it to end. Yeah, fair whereas, enough. Whereas this film, I felt it could have, even though it was kind of a long movie, it's over two hours, uh, I, I felt it could have kept going mm-hmm. and I would have just kind of flowed along with it. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think, uh, you know, it, I'll be curious to see if there's another cut of it or, or not, but um, it's certainly a, a film that uh, I enjoyed the journey a lot more. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, um, I think, again, I would urge people, if they get a chance to see the films of, of Malik, try and see them in the largest screen you can. Like, uh, Night of Cups didn't last very long in some as no. this, uh, this winter or spring. I guess it was about a few weeks ago it played. But, uh, but if it, it shows up at your local rep cinema or you have a chance to see it on a big screen, do so, because that's the only... I wouldn't say the only way you're going to gonna enjoy it but it, it definitely brings something to it when you're alone in a dark room with with a big screen and can hear it and see it and not have any kind of distraction uh, and I'm I'm really excited to see whether where Malik goes from here like if he continues down this road what kind of a feature film <laughs> are studios going to be prepared to release uh, as he gets 
more and more unique and abstract. Well, uh, amazingly, he's got two more films in the works. Like he's he's just firing on all cylinders. Um, there's two more titles coming up. Um, one of them is a love triangle set against the music scene of Austin, Texas, called Weightless, which I think uh, sees him working with uh, Bale again. So uh, it's funny he's worked with uh, two Batmans in the course of of his last two films. Um, and then uh, I think his uh, next film after that is going to be more kind of tree of life territory. It's mm. called Voyage of Time. It's got a 2016 date on it. Um, and uh, it's apparently an examination of the birth and death of the known universe. So <laughs> Okay. I, I Part of me wonders, like, uh, you know, apparently he's got Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett in it. So... But where it goes, I have no clue. <laughs> you know, but uh, maybe there'll be dinosaurs in it again. Uh, I, you know, if we're going with the birth and death of the universe, hopefully at some point we'll see some dinosaurs. I'll be okay with that. You've been listening to Lends Me Your Ears, and it's been our look at the films of American master filmmaker Terrence Malick. We are on Stitcher and iTunes. And you can find us on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. We're on Facebook, and if you feel like sending us some coins, we're on Patreon as well. Please email us at LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter, uh, Stephen and I, at Karstenox and at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lensmere Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout-out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to LendsMeYourEarsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. That was Lends Me Your Ear. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to start that way. Nope, nope, not going to do that. Let's start again.